morning. Good morning. Hey, good to see all of you today. Am I on here? I guess it. I guess so. Okay. Well, it's good to see all of you today. Um, I know it's it's a day early, but uh, happy Fourth of July to you. Isn't it a blessing to live in a country where we have freedom of worship? Right. Don't have to worry about the door busting open and. Uh, People coming in and trying to shut down what it is we're doing. Um, so we're grateful for that. If you're visiting with us and you've never filled out a visitor card, if you wouldn't mind doing that, we'd love to have you do that. You can do that online. by just, And you can get a, a five-year-old to show you how to do that. Um, take a picture of this with your cell phone. It should open up a web page. And, and it's also on the screen if you're watching at home. But anyway, there's a way for you digitally we can put a man on the moon and we can get you to fill out a card through your phone. I mean, it's just amazing. At any rate, we'd love for you to be able to do that if you have not done that for us before. I need to make two brief announcements and then uh, we'll get right into the, um, our worship time together. First uh, announcement is this. Next Sunday night is our business meeting and uh, it should be pretty uneventful. There's an agenda posted out there, but it's really just a... Agenda. There's no really, there's nothing uh, pressing, no items of business that you need to swing by and check out, but it is posted there in the foyer. And then a second announcement is this. Um, last Sunday of this month, I get to go to Lubbock and get dust and dirt in my ears and eyes and hair because Sydney has got a Red Raider orientation that Sunday. So we're going to be out of pocket. For that reason, we are going to move our fifth Sunday schedule, our normal one, to fourth Sunday. Okay? And so instead of, and, and I hope y'all hear this, but if you happen to bring banana pudding on fifth Sunday, I'll be fine eating it. But we're going to have our fifth Sunday activities on the fourth Sunday, which that is the 24th. All right? Was that perfectly clear as mud? So if they bring banana pudding on the fifth Sunday, they just need to leave it in the fridge with a Need to leave it in the pastor's gotcha. office. All right. Are there any other announcements we need to make? Anyone, anyone? Okay. I would like to say thank you to our church body uh, for the love that you showed Michael last Sunday. Um, over, overwhelming, overwhelming. And yesterday we got some more gifts in, in the mail, and I'm just thinking to myself, wow, what a loving church. Thank you all so much. Amen. Um, anyway. All right. Wonderful. Okay, there's no other announcements then. I would ask you to stand for our call to worship this morning. This is found in Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. And this is John the Apostle reporting what the Lord has shown to him. It says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Now join with me. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's worship together. It's going to be a familiar song. It's going to be a little bit different, so just...
foundation that we've managed to lay. And so we trust you this morning. And God, as we come, we say the same as that father who Jesus said, do you believe? We say to you, we believe, but help our unbelief. So God, this morning we want to sing to you about faith and the faith that is only in you. Let's sing this song together. morning's the final video. Okay. This morning's the final video. We've been uh, letting you know what God's doing uh, across the Atlantic Ocean to the far side of Africa in the nation of Kenya through the Hope Factory. And I hope that you've been blessed by these videos. 
Um, the one this morning, it's one of, uh, and this is not a warning, it's, it's longer than the other ones. So, um, and that's good. We get to see a lot of good things that God is doing over there. Um, I do want to let you know, our church does give $500 a month to the Hope Factory. Uh, but if you're interested in giving to the Hope Factory, I think the name of the website is thehopefactory.us. And, and if you'd like to, to give to the Hope Factory one time, a recurring donation, you can do that um, through the website. So um, be blessed through this video. placed a call on my life in November of 2011. Since then, my life has not been my own. I had to lay it down so that he could pick it up and use it for his own purposes. What that means when you get right down to it is that all the plans I had for my life, all the things that I thought were the most important were set aside to make room for the plans he had for me. Paul said in his letter to the church at Ephesus that God chose us before the foundation of the world and that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. What that says to me is that he determined before, beforehand what all of my gifts and talents would be uh, what my genetic makeup would be, everything about me, so that I would be uniquely equipped to accomplish what he had planned for me to do. Part of that equipping was making me into a person who gets knocked down but stands back up, who won't run in the face of danger, who may feel completely defeated today, but tomorrow, we'll wake up figuring out how to take the next step forward. I know deep down inside that Christ will hold me fast, even when I'm too tired to take the next step. Watching a video about our work in Kenya is sort of like looking at Facebook. You only see what people want you to see, beautiful children, and smiling faces, people praying. You don't see the struggles and the tears. You don't see typhoid sweeping through our compound, striking our teachers and students. You don't see the monthly budgets that we struggle to meet because of rising inflation. You don't see the $6.50 per gallon price at the pump when a teacher's salary sits at around $150 or when we build a fence and it's washed down by an unprecedented flood, or we grow a crop of maize to feed the children and a thief breaks in to steal it, or we drill a well and the pump fails one month out of warranty. We build a tower for water storage, 10,000 liters, and the tower collapses. <laughs> we develop a, a budget using every penny that we can raise, and then we lose a donor. Our inflation takes a large portion of the food we had planned for. We started out serving primarily a Christian community, and then God took us to a remote rural area inhabited by a clan of Muslims. You don't see this 
on Facebook, you only see the smiles of the beautiful children. But maybe that's a good thing. It's those beautiful smiles that keep me going um, when the going gets tough. That and knowing that Christ will hold me fast. Also, knowing that he created a support system for me through the church. The great British missionary, J. Hudson Taylor, speaks to me through the years, reminding me that all of you are in this with me. I am reminded of how much the cause of missions is indebted to many who are never permitted to see the mission field themselves. Hudson Taylor spent 51 years in China. He was the founder of China Inland Mission. He was responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries there, establishing 125 schools and seeing 18,000 conversions. I say this not to compare myself to Hudson Taylor. It took me a very long time to even think of myself as a missionary. I didn't take the normal route of making that decision in my youth of uh, going through training with the International Mission Board or relying on them for a salary. I did, however, unmistakably hear God's call on my life to the mission field, and I went. What I have to learn from Hudson Taylor is this. From this side of history, there is no way of knowing what will happen in Kenya and throughout East Africa as a result of answering his call and founding the Hope Factory. My prayer is that after my life on this earth is through, God will raise up some of you to do things I've never even imagined. I hope you enjoy this video of some of the ups and downs of our lives, not only mine, but yours as faithful supporters. This is the Hope Factory in its infancy. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast.
Psalm 116, 1 through 9. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you. Save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living.
as we sing this last song together, God, we, we want this to be a public corporate confession. That you are our only peace, our only hope, our only joy, our only love. And the world would try to convince us otherwise, but no matter how life changes or what you call us to do or what you put in place for us, God, we know that you are faithful to take care of us all the way through it so that your name may be glorified. So this morning, God, as we sing this song and then get in your word, we need you to plow the soil of our heart, break up the rocky places, break up the places that are tried, and change us today so that when we look back, we can say God did something that day never be the same.
If you would, please take your copy of God's Word. Turn to the book of 1 Timothy. We'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 4 today, the first five verses of 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you should find one around you in the pew. If you'll take that, turn to the back of the Bible, find page 164. Uh, You'll be at 1 Timothy chapter 5. Or at least I hope that's where you'll be. At least you'll be in 1 Timothy. 163. I, I was it's too quick. Too quick. Next Sunday though, right? 164 next Sunday? Jared's not listening to me. Okay. We're going one through five. Okay. Well, you should be in First Timothy anyway. We're continuing a sermon series through this book of chapter four. The beginning of chapter four marks the I guess about the halfway point. Um, it's at least the halfway point in the book. And um, all along the way, the sermon titles have included the word contend, which means to go to battle for, to fight. Um, it doesn't mean to be um, uh, belligerent. It just means that you're working from uh, conviction uh, and from a, a strong sense of being in the right. Um, not because you're right, but because God is right. And He reveals His truth clearly. And so this morning, uh, the title of the sermon is Contending Against Counterfeits. So I ask you to stand uh, so we can read the the Word of God. The Word of God can be read to us today. Uh, This is 1 Timothy chapter 4, and it's verses 1 through 5. And this is the Word of God. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything is created by God, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we are in desperate need to hear from you this morning. Lord, we know that we live in a world that um, is under the control of the devil and it hates the church. And uh, this world and and Satan would do anything to undermine the church. Anything to make us uh, less attuned to the truth. Anything to make us less, more like Christ. So, Father, we pray today that as we let this word permeate our hearts, that you would do a work in us that only you can do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, starting in verse 28, Paul tells uh, the elders from Ephesus, this is right before he's about to get on a ship and go to Jerusalem, he tells them, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now listen to this. 
Notice how Paul switches gears. I know, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In other words, Paul's saying there's going to be enemies from outside the church are going to come in and they're going to be like wolves among defenseless sheep, going to tear the flock up. He continues. He even, and he's talking to the elders at Ephesus. And he says, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. The truth of the matter is, at this point in the history of the church at Ephesus, the savage wolves are already prowling. There are already men among the elders who are saying and teaching perverse things, seeking to draw disciples after them. And so this is why, at the beginning of this letter, Paul tells Timothy, you stay on because there are some matters that need to be addressed. Now, as I prepared this week for this particular sermon, I have to tell you, it's not a difficult passage. It's not difficult to understand. It's not difficult to make an outline of it and to make points than to stand before you and to preach the truth that's found in it. That's not hard at all. I don't think it's difficult for you to understand. You probably are thinking, Brother Shannon, we could probably go home now. It's not difficult to understand. It's not difficult to preach. I'll tell you what it is. It's difficult for me as a pastor to stomach what it says here. That people will fall away from the faith. That's hard. And I've watched it happen. And so have you. And the sad truth that Paul reveals for us is that some people in the church will believe lies and fall away from the faith. If you're a person who likes to mark in your Bible, now K. Arthur made popular what was called an inductive study method. And if you were to take all the, the terms in 1 Timothy and mark anything that said something like shipwreck, drift away, uh, fall away... It's, it's all throughout the book. Paul is very concerned about people believing lies and falling away in Ephesus. Now notice, and this is what, how it reads in the New American Standard, he says, in later times, some will fall away. Now, that's nameless, faceless. But you and I know some names and some faces of people who have believed lies and have fallen away from the faith. Now Paul's not making this up. He says, verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says, clearly says, expressly says that this is the sad truth. Some people are going to believe lies in the church and fall away from the faith. Now the Spirit might have spoken this directly to Paul, might have come to Paul through the church uh, where a person prophesied that this was the truth, or Paul may simply be basing this on the very words of Christ as found in Matthew 24, verses 10 through 13, where Jesus says, At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
Spirit expressly says this is going to happen. And the Spirit says it's going to happen in later times. And generally, Paul, I believe, is talking about the time between Christ's first advent, his first coming at his birth, his incarnation, and then the time between that and his second coming, which is his second coming, his return, his second advent. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is why I believe generally later times Paul's referring to the days between Christ's first and second coming. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Acts 2, 17. This is Peter preaching at Pentecost. And he says, quoting from Joel... The prophet, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. So you and I, we are living currently in the last days. Paul, when he was writing this book to Timothy, was living in the last days. But this also we can understand later times as the closer we get to Christ's return. Second Thessalonians 2, 1 to 3. Paul says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus. And our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed either by a spirit, or a message, or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, Paul's saying, don't believe any lies that say that Christ has already come, and listen why. Let no one in any way deceive you, for Christ's second coming, it will not come Unless the apostasy, the falling away from the faith, comes first. So in the latter days, the Spirit expressly says that some people in the church are going to fall away by believing lies. Again, it says some and not all. Praise God for that. Jesus himself knew, John 6.64, he says to these people who are following him. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. See, true believers, the regenerate, those who have been born again from above, they endure to the end, but that's not all. Some will fall away from the faith. They will apostatize. They will have made a profession of faith, but were never regenerate, were never true believers. Jesus knows this. He says in John 6, 64, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. So they were never true believers. They were never made new. They professed faith. They had an outward appearance of godliness, but not the power of the Holy Spirit within them. Therefore, they're not going to endure to the end. Well, how do these people believe these lies? Well, Paul tells us in verse 1. It's it's by paying attention to, to, or devoting themselves to something else other than the truth of Scripture. They turn their eyes from the truth that is found in Christ, and they pay attention to something else. Now, when you read the words, fall away, it sounds as if it's passive, like something has happened to this to them. But understand this. Paul is not saying, well, it just happened. He's saying that those who fall away are active participants in their falling away. They pay attention to false teaching. So the sad truth 
is that some people are going to fall away, but that sad truth has a spiritual cause. And the cause of this sad truth is Satan, the father of lies. Jesus, talking about Satan in John 8, 44, says, Whenever he, Satan, speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. In Revelation 12, 9, John records... And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So Satan uses deceitful spirits. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Paul says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But Satan as an angel of light is a deceiver. He hates the church. He hates the bride of Christ. And so therefore, he sends his soldiers, these deceitful spirits, to wage war against the church through what Paul calls doctrines of demons. Notice Paul uses a particular word there, doctrines. Now we're accustomed to that word. We use that word. What Paul is saying here is that these things that are taught, they have the appearance of biblical truth. They have the appearance of being doctrine. And they're put forth as though they were authoritative and binding on people's consciences. But he says they are not Christian doctrines. They're not Christian doctrines. They are doctrines of demons. Now I submit to you this morning that if a demon were suddenly to manifest itself, its presence in our midst, we would immediately see the darkness and evil. And we would, th- we would say we, could, we should completely ignore whatever this demon says. But that's not how Satan works. You know, because if, the, if that demon were to materialize here, we'd immediately see the wickedness and the hatred of Christ and the church. No, that's not how Satan works. Satan comes disguised as an angel of light using a physical means. Liars to bring false doctrine into the church. That's what Paul says in verse 2. That this doctrine of demons comes by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron. They're liars. They're seared in their own consciences. They're hypocrites. And so the doctrine of demons enters the church through men who lie and who teach lies. That's what I believe Paul's talking about when he says deceitful spirits. Paying attention to men who have deceitful spirits in them who teach the doctrines of demons. I want you to notice a word there. Perhaps you've never heard this before. Paul says that These liars are seared in their own conscience. Seared. Now there are options for interpreting seared conscience. Perhaps you've heard the term before, uh, cauterize. If there's a wound that's bleeding really badly, and they want to stop, and, and I'm no EMT or nurse, so don't email me later if I get this wrong. But I do know that if a wound is bad enough that they need to stop bleeding, they'll burn it so it will stop the bleeding. And when the burning takes place, then the the nerves lose all feeling right there. Paul might be saying here that these liars 
have had their consciences cauterized so that they can no longer feel. As if their conscience has been turned off. I don't know if you've ever watched um, any documentaries about cults. People's Temple, Jim Jones, um, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Those people will talk about how something happened in their mind and their conscience just turned off to where the things that they were doing now they would have never thought that they could do. But their conscience had been seared. It could be that Paul's indicating that these people that are, that are teaching these lies, these doctrines of demons, God has just given them over. You know, in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about how sinners hate God so badly that they just defy Him with their life. And at some point, God just says, Okay, I hand you over to this life that you have chosen for yourself. And it's almost at, at, in that point that their conscience just turns off. Another possible interpretation of uh, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron is that these people, these liars, these deceitful spirits have been marked with a branding iron, the brand of Satan. In either way, either because... These men's consciences have been seared. They believe they're teaching Christian truth and don't realize their hypocrisy. And their consciences are so messed up, they really do believe they're teaching Christian truth. They don't realize their hypocrisy. That's, that's one thing that could be happening. Or these men know exactly what they're teaching. That it's not Christian doctrine. And therefore, that's where we get the, the hypocrisy from. And they know it's not Christian doctrine, but their consciences have been seared that they no longer even care about the consequences of this false teaching. Paul, I think, may be alluding that this is the right interpretation of that, of that section. When he says in, second, in 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, through 5, he says this, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine... Conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid in interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. And listen, who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. In other words, Paul may be talking about some prosperity preachers here. And we know that's what prosperity preachers do. Their consciences are so seared. They have to know this is wrong doctrine. But it doesn't bother them a bit. That money keeps pouring in because they have tapped into godliness being a means of great gain. So this spiritual cause, Satan, uses a physical means, these liars, to teach a false doctrine. That false doctrine we find in, in verse 3. It's a counterfeit truth. And so what Paul says these men are teaching is forbidding marriage and advocating abstaining from foods. So marriage is bad and certain foods are bad. Now this could be evidence of a couple of things going on in Ephesus. First is the influence of Gnosticism. 
Now, Gnosticism is, is weird. It's a strange belief system. But it, the way that I believe that it comes about is that Gnosticism tries to grapple with how is there evil in the world if God is good? So their explanation is there is a good God who's way out there. And then over time, he gave birth to another God. Don't ask me how this works. Who gave, to, gave birth to another God. Who gave birth to another God. Who gave birth to another God. And they, and they progressively got worse as they went. So that the God who, who created this earth, he's a bad God. So that's why they say that the, the physical stuff of this earth is bad. But spiritual stuff is good. In fact, that's the only way you're going to get out of here is you've got to have higher knowledge that kind of connects with those higher gods. It's whacked out. So they believe that only a few special people possess that knowledge and can share it with others. That could be what these men are teaching. But it could also be that there's a Judaizing influence in Ephesus. Remember, Paul addressed a letter to the people in Galatia because there was an influence there also in Philippi that if a person became a Christian, they had to be circumcised and they had to follow the Mosaic law. But remember Paul back in chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, he prescribes a right way of using the law. He calls it using it lawfully. And undoubtedly there were men in the church, these men, who were taking Old Testament law and making it binding on the conscience of people. Maybe in the way, like in Old Testament uh, times, when there was the abstaining of unclean food. That would, uh, that would explain why these men would forbid this kind of food, but it doesn't really indicate why they would forbid marriage. Uh, there was a group called the Essenes who lived in, uh, in between uh, the time of the Old and the New Testament. And they were a group of men who went out in the desert and they deprived themselves of everything, including marriage. So there could be all kinds of outward influences coming into the church. But it's all counterfeit. We ought to ask this question. Why is this counterfeit truth attractive? Why? Why would somebody look at that and go, that sounds really good? One commentary gives three reasons. One, to console your conscience. I want you to listen to this. It is the nature of all hypocrites and false prophets to create a guilty conscience in matters where there is no offense. And when they do so, they become anesthetized to the inner demands of the Spirit. The trick is to hide your inner wickedness by outward observances and denials. The Pharisees were pros at this. They would, in areas that, that people weren't bound, they would bind people and then they would show off their righteousness in those ways. But Jesus says, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You know that? Outwardly, you have this whitewashed paint all over you. You look good. But if you open up the tomb, you're full of dead man's bones. Another reason that people like this counterfeit truth is it can create another standard of righteousness. Listen to this. This is so good from this commentary. It says, When you find that you cannot abstain from selfishness or greed or cruelty or gossip, you attempt to acquire righteousness by abstaining from those things that God has left you free to do. I may not be as righteous here, but look at me. Beat my chest in these other areas. You don't want to talk about the areas on the inside. Third reason that people might believe 
find attractive this counterfeit truth is just as coping with this world and feeling like this world with all its pleasures is really tainted. And so if we renounce these things, then, then we'll make ourselves more open to what's spiritual and holy. That's why people are attracted to it. There could be more reasons. But why is this truth counterfeit? Why is it false? Why does it give the appearance of truth, but it's actually falsehood? Well, three reasons. One, it gives the appearance of holiness and piety. It gives the appearance of holiness and piety. So what these men were teaching, if people were taking and, and believing them and applying them, then they could beat themselves on the chest saying, look, look how good I am. The problem is, and this is the second thing, it enslaved them to additional works that these men required that truly are not required. So here's the question. How do you know if the works that you're doing are the right ones? Do you see the problem with that? That's why this teaching, and this is the third reason why this truth is counterfeit, is it diminishes the finished work of Christ. All that it takes... For a person to be saved is to admit that they are sinners, that they personally have sinned against the Most High God, and that in doing so, God is perfectly just to send them to hell for eternity. However, He has given a way for people to come to Him by faith in what He sent His Son to do on this earth, which was to die their death, the death that they should have died, that Christ didn't deserve to die. He died it in their place so that they might have the righteous life that Christ lived and have that applied to their account. So when they stand before God, they won't say, look at my works. They'll say, look at Christ's work. And that's why this is so deadly. This counterfeit truth diminishes the finished work of Christ. Finally, how do I fend off this spiritual attack? Leads us to our only defense. Know the truth. How do you fend off this kind of spiritual attack? You know the truth. Ephesians 6.17, Paul says, We use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's our only defense, to know the truth. And that's what Paul shares in verses 3 through 5. He says, God has created marriage and foods to be gratefully shared in by those who believe, who believe in Christ, and who know the truth, the truth of Christ, and can distinguish His truth from lies. Now here specifically, Paul is talking about knowing the truth of a Christian's new life of freedom in Christ. Because Christ has done all that is necessary There's nothing else we need to do. No one should come to us and, and seek to bind our consciences with additional works. Now, just because we have freedom in Christ, it doesn't mean that we're free to sin so that grace may abound. It's freedom from the law. Galatians 5.1, Jesus, I'm sorry, Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to to a yoke of slavery. 
Paul says God has created these things, marriage and foods, to be greatly shared, gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Why? He tells us, verse 4, For everything God created is good. Everything created by God is good. Because God is good. Because everything He creates is good. Not like, like Gnosticism that believes this world was created by an evil God. No, God is good. He created good, and He declared it good because it is good. Paul continues. He says, and nothing, what he means by there, nothing created by God is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Now, to give you an example of how that would be applied, Paul talks about meat that is offered to idols. In 1 Corinthians 10, there's a whole lot more I can say about this, but for the sake of time, I encourage you to go back and read that. Because one of the things that the Gentile church there in Corinth was having to grapple with is can we eat meat offered to idols? And Paul told them, an idol is nothing. Your conscience is free. He says in verses 25 to 27, eat anything sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Now Paul says more about this. And, and again, go back and read that chapter. But the reason that we can accept everything, that everything created by God is good, and nothing is be rejected if it is received with gratitude, is because, Paul says... It is sanctified. It's made holy by the Word of God. And what that means is, is that the New Testament speaks authoritatively that the Old Testament law regarding distinctions between clean and unclean foods, those dietary restrictions, they have passed away because of Christ's finished work. But then also, these, these things, they're sanctified through prayer. Prayer of blessing and thanksgiving. Now I want you to think here in terms of what I just mentioned about meat being offered to idols. And Paul says, if someone sets it before you, partake of it. An idol is nothing. Be thankful. And Paul says in verse 30 of chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10.30, If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Paul knows it's been sacrificed to idols. He knows it's not going to offend the conscience of anyone else there. He says, eat it. You're free to do that. Let no one bind your freedom. God has declared it good. And when you pray, then you further sanctify it. So we must contend against counterfeits. Friends, I want to tell you, the enemies are at the gate. Some of the enemies are already in the church. And when I say the church, I'm not talking specifically about Cherokee Church. I'm not. But the enemies are within the church. We have the enemies of critical race theory and intersectionality, of egalitarianism, of welcoming and affirming sexual sin into the church. And there are other unbiblical worldviews that are working their way into the church. And they're not benign ideas. They are cancerous through and through. That's why Peter tells the church, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We have to be on the alert. Now, 
I don't know that I would have ever thought that critical race theory would, would begin to show up in the church. Never would have imagined that in a thousand years. How does something like that begin to happen? Let me tell you, and I'm going to use our church as an example, okay? Because I know that if critical race theory were to come in here, if I were to start preaching it, you'd run me out of town on a rail. If I started talking about accepting deviant sexuality in the church and affirming it and welcoming it, you would run me out of town on a rail. So you're looking for the big ticket items. Don't you dare say that stuff. How would it happen to a church like ours? I don't know if this is true or not, but I've always heard of this illustration about the frog in the kettle. If you take a frog and there's a, 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 a pot on a stove and it's got boiling water in it, if you throw that frog in there, it's immediately going to jump out, right? It's going to feel, this is not right, I will, I will burn, I will be somebody's supper if I stay here. However, if you take that same frog in that same pot and put it on the stove and, and it's, it's room temperature water and you just turn up the temperature just, just a touch, just a little bit and let him get used to it. And you turn it up just a touch more and let him get used to it and, and, a, and a touch more and let him get used to it. And before long, the frog is boiled to death. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. If someone has ever tried that. But doesn't that make sense? We're looking for big ticket items. Boy, we don't want those big sins to come in our church. Well, how do things like what happened in Ephesus happen in a church like Cherokee Baptist Church? It's when we don't know the truth and it happens slowly over time. And we don't contend for the truth. And we don't contend for the church. And we don't contend for people's souls in the church by saying something when we see them get off the rails. That's, that's how it happens. Well, friends, you know and I know, we all know, we have got to be diligent in this day and age. Because counterfeits will, will try to come into the church. And we've got to stand up. We have to know the truth. I'm going to ask you a very pointed question. Do you know enough truth from the Scripture? Are you investing daily time in God's Word so that you know a counterfeit truth when you see it, when you hear it? If the answer to that question is no, that's how counterfeit truth will come into Cherokee Baptist Church. Because there won't be enough truth here that people will go, wait a minute, wait a cotton-picking minute. What he's saying is wrong. Because you don't know what's right. Friends, we must, if we're going to contend for against counterfeits, we must know the truth. Father, we thank you for this truth that we have heard from Paul. We praise you um, that you sent this message to the church in Ephesus through Paul to Timothy to tell him that the church there is so incredibly important. All churches are. But there must be truth, your truth, put in front of the people. They must know it. They must internalize it. They must live it. And failure to know the truth is just opening the door for counterfeits to come in, for a church, for people to get off the rails 
and for you to threaten to come and remove their lampstand for they no longer look like you. Lord, I pray that our church, and I believe it is, is far away from that. But Lord, don't let us be like the frog in the pot. Don't let us get complacent. Don't let us get busy and turn our eyes from the truth to the point where we can't discern truth from error. Lord, draw us into your word. Feed us upon it. Fill us with it. Help us to understand it and to apply it and to be vigilant. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to sing in times like these, so if you would, please stand. If there's any sort of decision you need to make at this time, I encourage you to do so. I didn't have anywhere to go today. If you'll be seated for a moment, I want to give you a, a couple of quick updates, um, some, some things to pray for in our prayer list. Uh, Addie Webster um, was taken to the hospital. Uh, she, is she in Temple, Sue? She's back in Temple. Um, and so that was early this morning. Uh, you know, she had a really rough week of treatment last week. And so um, she's just dealing with so much. Um, fever is, is the big thing. And have you heard anything back from them this morning? Okay. So please pray for Addie Webster if you don't know who that is. Uh, Connie and TJ um, Webster's granddaughter. And so pray for her. She's dealing with uh, a form of cancer. Also, um, it says Betty Wilson on this uh, prayer list. That's my aunt uh, from my mom's side of the family. She actually passed away on Wednesday, so we're going to attend her graveside on Tuesday. So pray for my aunt's family. 
I'm fairly certain that my uncle is not a believer. And so join me in praying for his salvation. Um, we also need to add Jean um, Schilling to our list. That's Paul's dad. Uh, Jean, can I, can I say what's going on? Yes. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. So Jean Schilling, Paul's dad, had a stroke. Um, and, and so that um, they're going to keep him in the hospital until Tuesday. And they said, so far, it's just peripheral vision on the right eye. Okay? Is, is, did I get it all right? Oh, yay. Not yay that he did that, but I'm just glad. I want you all to hear what's going on so you know how to pray. Um, any other prayer updates or anything? Okay. I, I looked around during the... <laughs> during the... Some of y'all got teary-eyed, and I know it's because of these four right here. Y'all come on up. So last week was our, our youth camp, and uh, it was a fantastic camp. Um, so this morning, James Beck and Lily Graves and Weston Woolsey and Emma Owens. Um, Emma, Emma's not, has, she comes to youth group. I don't think you've come on Sunday morning, have you? Okay. But she went to camp last week, and all four of them are coming today to say that Jesus Christ is their Savior. They profess faith in Him. They wanted to share that with you. And so you could uh, encourage them and, and have the joy that they had. I know Jared wants to say something real quick. So go ahead. So I do want to say I know there were individuals in this church praying for our group as they went to camp. Um, what an amazing week. I, I will say your prayers were answered. Um, we were talking this morning in Sunday school that we literally saw our own prayers, myself, the leader, other leaders, and the kids, answered in our midst, sometimes within minutes of praying them. Um, some of them that were answered for me are standing right here. Um, I literally was praying for one of these individuals, and 10 minutes later, they came up to me and said, I want to follow Christ. Um, it was an amazing week, and if you want to know more about it, get with these kids, get with the other, myself or the leaders. Um, eventually, I am going to put something together as far as pictures and videos and, and really tell you all what happened, but God worked in our group. We went over there with 18 Right, Brandon? 19 kids. 21 of us all, but three leaders, 19 kids. Um, we came back with not a single kid on that bus who could say that Jesus Christ was not their Savior. We came back with a bus full and suburban full of believers. Um, it was amazing, and thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. They wouldn't have been there if it was, wasn't for this church supporting them. Um, so, yeah, I, I took joy in saying this the other day. Um, so I want you to meet James, my son, and your brother in Christ, and Lily, my daughter, and your sister in Christ, my sister too, my brother, Weston, my nephew, um, your brother in Christ, and Emma, my friend, and your sister in Christ. Um, 
I got to speak with all of these individuals. It was amazing to see how God was working on them and answering prayers. Um, our group is on fire. Pray that that fire stays alive and burning, that it just consumes us all. Um, so praise God. Amen. First off, can we just say amen for that? Amen. And second off, I would like to thank all of you church family for giving us the opportunity to go for this camp. It really meant a lot to me, and I know several others in the youth, and thank y'all. So in the weeks to come, we'll, I'll be counseling with these young people, and, and uh, we'll let you know we may have a baptism service. We, I, wouldn't that be great, just to have a whole <laughs> baptism service? That'd be awesome. So anyway, we'll let you know when that happens. Um, we're going to have a word of prayer. And then say the Great Commission. And I want you to come by and love on these kiddos uh, and just tell them how excited you are for the decisions that they've made. So, uh, and I'm going to pray for our country uh, since it is uh, July 3rd. So if you'll stand and join with me. Father God, we thank you for living in a country where we can come together like this and worship freely. We thank you for freedom. We thank you for those who paid the price that we might have freedom. Or we look at our country, and we know it says on our money and in various other places, and God we trust, but we look and we see so often anything but. But, Lord, we know that nations rise and fall at your command, at your hand. We, we can look in history, and to me it's unmistakable that your hand was on this country. So we praise you for that. Lord, we know uh, that over time... Our country has become like the frog in the pot. We have over time just allowed sin to creep more and more into our public society. Lord, I pray that it's not the church's fault. I pray that we have not become so um, just content with our little section of life that we have failed to see the, the trajectory that our nation is on. So God, we lift our country up to you. We pray for President Biden. We pray for his cabinet. We pray for all of those who serve in government. We know there are some very good people who serve in those places. But we also know that there are some who hate you, who hate goodness, who love wickedness, and want to see wickedness spread throughout this land. Lord, we pray in the name of Christ that you would um, cause good to come into our country, that wickedness would be put down. We pray, Lord, that you would bring a great revival to our country. And perhaps, who knows, Lord, this revival in our country, what if, it, what if, what if you would be so pleased to let that revival begin at Camp Zephyr and then come to Cherokee Baptist Church and then spill over? Lord, it's your will and your ways. But, Lord, we're willing to be part of the way that you bring this country to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's say the Great Commission together, and then you come love on these youth. And Jesus came and said to them...